You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where industry leaders, regulators, and lovers of cannabis gather collectively to move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Professionals and Canacurious alike can tune in to hear leading cannabis experts share and discuss headlines, critical industry issues, social topics, and more. The State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Hi, and welcome to the State of Cannabis News Hour, where we bring you all the top stories you need to know and talk about them for four minutes and 20 seconds. We are a group of experts in different cannabis spaces with a wide diversity of perspectives and life experiences. Our news is bite-sized and infused with a nice mix of facts, opinions, and a pinch of humor. It's Tuesday, May 10th, 2022. This is episode number 276. I'm Susan Sores, the founder of the State of Cannabis News Hour, author of the children's book, What's Growing in Grandma's Garden, and Cam- Cannabis' Favorite Grandma, a.k.a. Nanogram. If you're listening to the podcast, the show is live every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Clubhouse. Spark it up with us and over 30,000 State of Cannabis News Hour members if you want to be an audience participant. Otherwise, please subscribe to support our show. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a review. Today we're talking about psychedelic activists arrested at DEA headquarters, Ricky Williams and his cannabis venture, Connecticut governor signing a bill creating a psychedelic treatment program, Sacramento taking the lead on consumption lounges, the feds are funding a study on cannabis and cancer, and many other frosty nuggets. So stay tuned for the full 60 minutes of the State of Cannabis News Hour. The following program contains coarse language and nudity. Viewer discretion is advised. Audience, feel free to raise your hands if you want to weigh in on a headline after it's been read, and we'll try to bring you up to the stage. Keep it brief and relevant, or you might get the gong. Kicking off the show today is Rico Lamite. He likes to ask the tough questions that the mainstream media refuses to ask. The self-proclaimed dopest dad alive is here to encourage other dope dads. Find him on TEDx or at one of his Cannavision events, but always find him here every weekday as co-producer of the State of Cannabis News Hour. What is your headline today, Rico? All right. So my story is from Victor James at Spectrum News One. Ricky Williams' growing cannabis venture with special partnership. The legendary football god with a lowercase g, I'm talking about the 1998 Heisman Trophy winner, the 1999 NFL number one draft pick, the man who paved the way for many other active top-tier athletes to even open up about cannabis usage, whether it was for recovery or mid-competition. Ricky Williams. While quietly suffering from social anxiety disorder, Ricky failed multiple positive tests, eventually earning him a year-long suspension for violating league substance abuse policy, which led him to being painted as an addict by the league and mainstream media. He says he needed those negative experiences to evolve, though. Like in all the movies and myths, when the hero overcomes the struggle, they may learn something about themselves and they use that piece of knowledge and keep moving forward. When I left the NFL... And the struggles really hit. I just kept overcoming them and seeing where they led me next. And they led me here, starting my own brand in Southern California, Ricky said. For his new brand, Heisman, he's enlisted longtime friend and founder of Ball Family Farms, Chris Ball. Ball's an original member of the 90s boy band Immature. 
uh, ended up playing college football at UC Berkeley and eventually pro in the NFL Europe and CFL. And Canada's where he learned how to harvest and started trapping. Trafficking to the U.S. earned him a near 10-year bid on a 2010 indictment far removed from the past sports and entertainment careers. Both Williams and Ball are respected industry influencers, thought leaders, and operators in their own right. But they first met over a decade ago um, um, through a mutual friend who has since passed away, San Diego native Darrell uh, D. Russ Russell. D. Russ played college ball at USC and pro in the NFL before running into problems with the league's drug program. 2005, he decided to, uh, he died alongside a former USC team, teammate in a high-speed crash in the middle of a career comeback in an attempt to get back into the league following an indefinite suspension for popping positive for ecstasy. Williams said the NFL drug program really hurt D. Russ and affected his life in a negative way. He and Chris got closer through the connection and the empathy for their fallen friend. And even though Ball grew up idolizing Ricky on the field, he now wants to trade places and mentor him in cannabis. To see his career be taken away for indulging in a plant that's good for him, it touches me in a way that makes me want to help and be involved with him. Together, they want to create a larger positive narrative about cannabis and use their struggles as roadmaps for others using their combined influence and grow BIPOC ownership in the industry. Ricky closed the article by saying, so where's the uh, so where the story was cannabis ruined my life. I said, I'm going to live in a way to say cannabis saved my life. I see on Chris's package and cultivating the culture. And this is what I'm saying. It's about building, growing a culture and not defending against the old regime. But it's about greatness and caring for each other in high quality, pun intended. To me, seeing these two visibly build together in cannabis is awesome on so many levels. And I know it might not hit so hard for some of my melanin deficient brothers and sisters in the room, but that's okay. But for me, two successful, influential black men in cannabis who also achieve high levels of success of success in sports and entertainment, but first persevered through near impossible upbringings. It's the repeated resilience for me. Using their experiences to help others that might be in similar situations that might need to hear them to see them, it can end up being the last bit of motivation needed to put somebody on a better track, and that's beautiful. We need to witness these collaborative wins as a community to fight back against the multitude of negative narratives on black men tied to controlled substances playing 24-7 on mainstream media, and I'm 100% here for it. I wish Ricky and Chris the best on their new project together. You know it's vague in this article, uh, but Spectrum News is teasing their Beyond the Sport uh, um, special with Chris and Ricky dropping more details this Friday at 9.30 p.m. Central. I'll definitely be checking that one out. And... Um, I reached out to uh, both Chris and Ricky's people this morning, but it was a uh, too short notice to get uh, to get them on the show with us. But um, hopefully, I'll get an interview with them, and um, I can't wait to see what the collaboration is and um, see the the news and the information they'll be pumping out to the community. This is Rico Lamit, dopest dad on the street. Love to hear from the rest of you guys. I love this good news, and I think it's really important that we have this platform, the State of Cannabis News Hour, to make sure that we spread stories like this far and wide. Thank you for sharing, Rico. I think it's a dope story, Rico, and thank you for sharing. Um, I was on stage with Chris Ball during MJ Biz last year, and, like, he is, like, really serious about what he's doing and his business, and it's a family business, and to bring Ricky Williams in. And folks that don't know, Ricky has started, I think, doing some work down in South Florida um, many years ago when Florida first went legal, and I don't know what happened, so I'm hoping that he has better success or that maybe whatever his ideas from a product perspective really come to fruition um, with his partnership with Chris. 
I'm just really excited about it, man, because um, especially being down here in Southern California, you don't see a lot of um, power players, uh, whether it's on the product side, whether it's on the influencers, uh, influential side, uh, or whatever. You don't see a lot of power players uh, going out and working together and, and being public about it uh, either. So it's like, really, really encouraging for me. You know, as a, as, as a younger brother in the game, you know, it's it's is inspirational. And I hope that um, uh, the newer generations that are coming into the game uh, uh, learn a little something from it because, you know, people just don't fuck with each other here in L.A. Yeah, that's not good. And they've got some fire flower. I just have to say, somebody in uh, Santa Barbara just talked to me and be like, oh, this flower is phenomenal. And they grew it. So props. Hopefully it's not boof, Jason. I'll, 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 I'll bring y'all some. Uh, Chris has got some fuego. It's very, very good. And it's indoor, Jason. You would love it if you haven't already. Well, well, we'll see. We'll see once I try it. Seeing is believing, and the proof is in the pudding. I'll bring, I'll bring some of that put into Green Street. How you like it now? Perfect. That'll be a perfect. It's a perfect place to smoke over here. All right. Well, shall we keep smoking the news? Let's. If you saw us sitting at the same table together, you'd probably think that he was my photo negative. But he's not. He's a mint coat wearing, private jet hopping, Emerald Cup judging, industry's longest continuously running retailer who will call you out if you bring outdoor booth to the party. Jason Beck, what you got for us this morning, my man? Oh, Rico, just for the record, I will also call you out if you bring indoor booth also, just so you know. You know, booth is booth is non-exclusive to indoor. Are outdoor. you saying it's inclusive? But, yeah, 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 there we go. Yeah, that word. But nonetheless, my story today all starts with a traffic stop on Alabama Interstate. Turns up 250 pounds of weed and two North Carolina men held on a $1.5 million bond each. That'd be $3 million if you, anyone can do some basic math. A traffic stop on Alabama Interstate led to the seizure of 250 pounds of marijuana and landed two men behind bars. A police officer at 1.30 in the morning Monday stopped a Toyota cargo van on I-59 northbound in the town of Steele, said Police Chief Mark Ward. The department's drug-sniffing dog, Tara, hit on a presence of marijuana inside the van. A subsequent search turned up the marijuana that was concealed in locked bags and moving boxes. Two North Carolina men have been charged with drug trafficking. Jakari Martin, 37, and Ron Banks, 42, both of Charlotte, were booked into the St. Clair County Jail just after 5 a.m. Their bonds are now set at $1.5 million each. Banks is also charged with certain persons forbidden to possess a firearm. It's a nice little seizure for sure, Ward said. Note to readers, if you purchase something through one of our affiliate links, we may earn a commission. Well, it sounds like, sounds like this news outlet is also trapping peas for these North Carolina men based off of that account. And this is Jason Beck reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. What's the street value on that 250 pounds, Jason? It depends on if it's brown Mexican weed or if it's actually like indoor fucking fire, 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 or if it's just some outdoor booth. The Come booth. on, what's the algorithm? You said the booth? Booth? You're going to need a booth vest? What's the algorithm here? I want to know for like boof or for indoor, like cop math. What does this actually equal? I don't know, but if you look at the picture, I mean, the weed doesn't look amazing, but the dog, the canine uh, terror is pretty cute. <laughs> it is, a, it is a, a pretty motherfucking dog. I got to say so myself. Yeah, it is. But it needs to be retired. 
No, it shouldn't. Yeah, no, it, no, 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 no. What he needs to be doing is fucking c- carrying some fucking hemp in the car so then that way he could say that fucking this is the shit that the drug dog sniffed on. Are we even sure that that's not hemp? Right. We're not. Uh, I, I, I'm sure it's not hemp. I don't know, man. I don't trust two, two guys Al- getting pulled Al- over. Alabama, Alabama two, cop dog noses. Two two guys getting pulled over at one thirty in the morning with two hundred and fifty pounds. It's definitely not hemp. Not buying that. Dude, shit. they were bringing that top shelf to Bama. They were they were, they were bringing that shit to, to Mitch McConnell's house. They were putting the Bama back in Bama. It never left. So you're saying that all the weed was grown in state? Sure. Let's keep smoking the news. <laughs> Wait, wait. Ted wants to talk. Ted, please talk. Ted, talk. Where are you, Ted? Oh, Dr. Bong. Go ahead. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Forgive me, Susan. Forgive me, guys. Yo, I just wanted to say today's show is funny as shit, man. And Jason, I've been saying boof like off the chain. So thanks for the new uh, word here in New York City. And yeah, that, that dog is beautiful and that bud looks like trash. So it may be some booth. Booth is booth. Indoor booth, outdoor booth. New York, peace. 100%, Dr. Bong, 100%. And also, too, just for anyone that notes, if you go and look at the Urban Dictionary for the definition of booth, we need to fix that because it's clearly the wrong fucking definition. Um, isn't the Emerald Cup, uh, isn't there like a, a competition between indoor and outdoor this year? No, they're two separate categories. Oh, okay. And then is there going to be like an overall winner? Yes, there's a best overall, yes. So we're it's gonna a match-off. We're, we're going to have the Green Street Cup where we're going to bring Jason a bunch of uh, indoor and outdoor unlabeled, and we're just going to smoke it all and see if he can identify And Nanogram's going to smoke identify, him. <laughs> Go ahead. I will, yeah, right. Not even on your best day. Um, I, I, I will smoke all of them. I will, I will get a 100% on that score, and I'll tell you what. The only way that if I if one was to be wrong, it was because the people lied to you on what their what their method was. You know what? I spoke with a, a someone who's ahead of like uh, is putting basically all of the categories together for the Emerald Cup, and he was telling me that they're going to do it based on terpene profiles and other things like that. They're that's, not going to be doing that's, that. That, that that's no no that's sep- that's separate. That's a separate part of the awards uh, ceremony, the competition. There's six, there's six different categories, and then there are different uh, different entries that will receive uh, mentions or notoriety for high certain different type of terpenes within the different profiles. Liz, I think you just triggered Jason. Thanks for clarifying, Jason. <laughs> first of all, first of all, I carry the guns, so I'm, I'm the trigger piece. Eric, you get no, the last word. I was just going to add that um, they... The Emerald Cup put out a press release about that a few months ago, so you can check that out, Liz. They have all the different categories and how they're doing the terpene stuff. So it's it's pretty cool that they're adding. Yeah, that. it's actually based on and some real science, some philo uh, philo certification. Yeah, Michael Bacchus, who uh, wrote the cannabis pharmacy, told me that he was a part of that. It was really cool to see how advanced they're getting with it. Love Michael Bacchus. My, my, Let's keep smoking. Michael Backus. Michael Backus should only be referred to on the show as Morpheus because that is what his screen name was when we had fucking Weed Tracker way before Weed Maps. That's true. He did. So love him even more. Let's keep smoking the news. Who who am I going to? You guys? Am I just going to Brandon? Roz. 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 <laughs> well, no one sent the yeah, thing. All right. Well, coming up, she's a Florida-based entrepreneurial badass leading the charge for the ultimate 
cannabis lifestyle brand, Black Buddha Cannabis. Also the CEO and founder of Minorities for Medical Cannabis. Coming next to the stage, it's Roz McCarthy. Yes, and it's M for MM is our anniversary to today, so we're celebrating six years of being on this planet. So, um, yes, 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 yes. So thanks for sliding me in, man. This is a really great article, and this is coming from ABC 10 out of Sacramento. Could Sacramento be the next destination for cannabis lounges? City leaders are discussing a proposal. The city's cannabis management office says consumption lounges could increase opportunities for license holders to partner with existing restaurants. So imagine having brunch with your friends where you could order marijuana on the side. While cannabis lounges are relatively new, the first one in the country, Lowell Farms Cafe, opened in West Hollywood in 2019. Now the city of Sacramento is considering allowing dispensaries to branch into the market. It's one idea out of a sweeping set of proposals to overhaul the city's cannabis business landscape. It's set for a committee discussion on Tuesday. Just like on a Friday night, you want to go have a cocktail with your significant others, your friends, the same thing you should be allowed for cannabis. Um, so, she, it's, so she says she's all in for the idea, and this is Maisha Bahate, the owner of Crystal Nugs, Sacramento's only black-owned cannabis delivery service. She says it's illegal to smoke really anywhere except your house. Bahati says, there's a lot of people who can't smoke at home, so having a place where you can safely consume, that's something that's attractive to a lot of people. In downtown Sacramento, there's no short, there was no shortage of people who supported the idea. So everybody knows it's legal. Everybody knows that it's used for medicinal purposes, so everybody should be comfortable with it, says uh, Tony Mosby. Um, so as it goes down, the new state laws allow local jurisdictions to permit cannabis retailers to also prepare and sell non-pot food and beverages. The city's Office of Cannabis Management is recommending city leaders jump on the opportunity to attract tourism and support economic growth. Bahati says it's a chance for the city to back up its commitment to social equity. She was one of 10 Cannabis Opportunity Reinvestment in Equity, that stands for CORE, recipients awarded a dispensary permit in addition to the city's existing 30 storefronts. The core program is a program created to assist individuals and communities who are facing barriers to start cannabis businesses due to historical disproportionate enforcement of cannabis crimes. With 30 existing dispensaries, it's already going to be a hard to compete. So being able to attach something that's going to be new to consumers is really going to give us core recipients an opportunity to solidify ourselves and kind of building uh, and kind of build something. Um, cannabis consumption lounge license in the state comes with, a sev- with several age and operation restrictions, including prohibiting the sale of alcohol and tobacco. Um, the four-person law and legislation committee meets Tuesday. So if you're in Sacramento, I know I saw Danielle Motley out there. Anyone that's in Sacramento, if you want to weigh in on this, Tuesday, May 10th, 11 a.m. It's coming up today. The city council could vote on the matter on May 24th. Make sure that you let your voice be heard. Um, I'm Rob McCarthy, News Hour. Thanks much, guys. This is so amazing, Roz. I uh, I'm trying to find the the video right now, but the it's it wasn't it a city council member that was like, why wouldn't we do this? It, it seems like uh, we see a turning of the tide. Yeah. Well, Nicole Buffon is out in the audience as well, and she's in Nevada, and so Nevada has been working on this consumption, their consumption bill forever, and they have ten that's going to go to the big businesses and ten that's going to go to social equity. So I do think that we're going to step up of this conversation 
And I am for core being able to be the first ones to participate from a, from a, you know, from a consumption, from a venue perspective. So let's wait and see what happens. I just, I just have to say, I love how in all of these articles, it always references Lowell Cafe. And I'm sure that the owners are just fucking furious about this because Lowell's, they had a licensing agreement to call it Lowell's in the beginning. And then they reached, they then changed the name uh, to the OG Cannabis Cafe. And yet in all the presses and all the papers, it's still known as Lowell's Cafe. It's got to be fucking getting them so angry. Well, maybe Lowell's is pretty stoked. <laughs> well, of course Lowell's is, but the people that actually own the cafe... And that it's it's actually called the OG Cannabis Cafe now. Or I'm, I'm sure are fucking highly pissed about this. Is the cap? I mean, is it is it thriving in West Hollywood? Is it? It's it's, it's, it's been closed it's now. Closed. It's, it's been closed nope. since COVID. It hasn't even reopened yet. Oh my god! It closed really? before COVID, and has not reopened. <laughs> yeah. It just goes to show you the power of being first to market. Uh, but we've got Danny up from the audience. Danny, did you want to weigh in on Roz's headline? I did. I wanted to say uh, congratulations, Roz, on building M4MM. And we are so grateful for partnering with you um, with the Chamber of Cannabis and getting consumption lounges, our bill passed here in Nevada. Uh, we just had a county commission hearing for the city of Las Vegas. And they're still at ABC. They're like, how are these businesses going to make money? Like, how, how, how? And we're like, we live in Las Vegas. Just whatever you can think of that can happen in Vegas, add some cannabis, get some new tourism. Let's drive some tax revenue. And uh, I mean, just because we're first to market doesn't mean it's not a viable business. So thank you so much. Hold yeah. on, Danny. Does that does that mean that there's going to be prostitutes on the menu at the consumption lounges also? <laughs> I mean, Jason. imagination's your only limitation. Danny, ignore him. I see somebody's, somebody's messing around Listen. with the my pillow guy. <laughs> So listen, they, so that that came up in the conversation about the fact that they wanted to uh, allow social equity to have the space, but not have the ability to wholesale product. And so I think that's another part of the conversation that we have to think about for a while. How can you do and have a really progressive, growing business model without having the ability to wholesale flour and sell product on premise? And uh, and I think some of the dispensaries didn't like that idea. Danny, are you saying that the elected officials were saying that how are these businesses going to make money? Was it? Y yes, they're still at that page. So they I mean, don't think that these are viable. That's not their problem to deal with. Well, it is their problem if they're going to issue these types of licenses in hopes that it's going to bring in certain type of revenues to, to the community and it's not going to be able to generate it because they're not profitable. It is their problem. Oh, got it. Okay. How much money are you going to make and give us? Uh, well, okay. Yep, that's it. It always follow the money. That's what Rico says. Follow the money. Follow the money. Go ahead, Jason. I just say I, I kind of agree with them because I think uh, with with a lot of these different business models with consumption lounges, it's extremely difficult to make money off of them. I mean, you in essence have a default restaurant, and that's your main uh, revenue. And everyone that knows anything about the restaurant industry knows that a restaurant um, is probably one of the hardest industries to turn a profit on. Remember the treehouse, Jason? Did you go there? You did, yeah, right? yeah. I've been to the treehouse, but like that wasn't that, that was just a little trap smoke lounge. He thought he was going to make money uh, renting bongs. Yeah, he was. He was. He was ridiculous. <laughs> that was never a viable business plan whatsoever. No. He, he was going to sell memberships, and I'm just like, who's going to yeah. pay for a membership to go smoke weed somewhere when we can smoke any weed anywhere we fucking want to? But he Am looked I like weed Jesus. Am I working Kalamazoo, Michigan? They popping off over there. 
I say let's take a step forward and uh, let's see, let's get some case studies and get get some movement and then have this conversation. But moving the industry forward for certain. I'm with it, Danny. I'm a man about my data, not my drama. You know, speaking of taking it forward, um, anybody in L.A. should check out Artistry. I was there um, this past weekend, and that place is swank. It's really a great setup. The lounge, it's also an dispensary. And they're working in partnership with a restaurant, you know, to Jason's point. So you can eat there, but they're working with a restaurant down the street where um, the food is delivered so you can have, you know, a nice meal. You can meet with folks and hang out in a beautiful space. So I think that's the future, something on the did order you, where the artistry's pulled off. Did you order any food, Eric? I didn't, but, um, you know, just checking it out, man, I think a, a lot of thought and a lot of um, – you know, they made some really good decisions in there. I think of the space is beautiful. It's got an open patio. I mean, it's West Hollywood and that, you know, you're there. So, you know, this place is, is tourism ready. So I think it's going to do really well. I'd like to see spas where you can consume. I think they could make money, but we need to keep smoking the news. Yes, we do. Or we can get manicures and pedicures with bath salts. There's nothing wrong with that, Jason. Up next, his love for the plant developed around the same time as his beard. As a young Michigander, just looking to keep his face warm and find his way. But now as an adult, he's living in sunny Long Beach, where both the beard and his endocannabinoid palate have grown. Together, they've evolved into the CEO of Fruit Slabs and Cannabis IP attorney. We have come to the stage next. Brandon Dorsky, what flavor is the news today? Thanks for having me. My flavor of news is being reported by Kyle Yeager at Marijuana Moment. The headline is, working in Canada's marijuana industry does not make people inadmissible to U.S. Border Patrol document confirms. A recently disclosed Customs and Border Protection memo confirms that working in Canada's cannabis industry does not bar you from entering the United States. This is a direct contradiction to what top CBP officials told the agency following Canada's legalization in 2018 when they suggested working in the industry or for an ancillary business could permanently impact one's ability to visit or immigrate to the United States. The law firm Davis Wright Tremaine LLP sought a copy of CBP guidance under the Freedom of Information Act, and new CBP guidance says verbatim, quote, If the alien is is engaged in business, in a marijuana business in Canada, where there is no commerce with the United States, that alone would likely not make an alien inadmissible. This is true whether the alien is the proprietor, cashier, or involved in other areas of the business wholly within Canada. However, depending on the nature of the alien's employment, it may be appropriate to question the alien regarding the purpose and intent of their visit to the United States. An attorney for Davis Wright said, quote, agencies like CBP lack the authority to make new laws or decisions regarding the official U.S. response to changes in foreign law. Nonetheless, CBP says that if the person's reason to travel to the U.S. is specifically related to cannabis commerce, actually marijuana THC commerce, they would be inadmissible. CBP said, quote, if a business engages in some sort of commercial dealing in the U.S., admittedly production, sale, and or distribution of marijuana to the public, the applicable legal standard is broad enough to render inadmissible aliens whom there is a reason to believe will assist in the illicit trafficking of a controlled substance, as well as aliens who have more directly trafficked in a controlled substance. Custom and Border Patrol's redacted document even lays out some scenarios on admissibility with a multiple-choice question test as to whether or not someone would be admissible. 
Overall, traveling to the U.S. with the stated intention of seeking employment in the marijuana industry could still lead to a denial, and the risk of a lifetime ban still exists, and border officers have some latitude to make that determination. So whether you're Canadian or you're American or you're from anywhere else and you are at the border, if you're coming to the United States to do something in cannabis, it's probably best to keep your mouth shut and just say you're here for some other purpose. It's Brandon Dorsky reporting for the State of Cannabis News. I find the use, the use of the word alien a little strange, and they used it so many times. It's like, it, it, doesn't it seem a little derogatory? No. Unless you That's mean they're called. Like extraterrestrials. Well, no, Jason. no. If you, if, you, if you get a green card, it's called a resident alien card, okay? It's not uncommon. It's what people are called when they're from foreign lands. It's called aliens. It's just what Just it because is. it's not uncommon doesn't mean it doesn't sound wrong or weird or derogatory. That you're the only one that thinks it sounds wrong, weird, or derogatory, Susan. That's it's what has been used for decades. <laughs> no, I'm with you, Susan. It, yeah, That's up. You, you, got, you got to check your tone. <laughs> yeah, you guys. Because, I mean, so, you know, we, even Congress introduced a bill, right, in the 116th Congress to remove cannabis from the Deportable Offenses Act. And, I mean, it uses the alien language and all of that, but it was – you know, those who were denied visas or who are deemed inadmissible or even those who were deported for cannabis use or cannabis offenses uh, within the United States, um, you know, it, it was addressed in this bill. So even Congress thought that this was the law of the land. This is really interesting, Brandon. I mean, I, I don't see why why this is this is such a thing and getting people up in arms. I mean, Canada doesn't allow uh, U.S. citizens to enter their country if they have a DUI, if they have HIV/AIDS. I mean, there's a whole host of of different things that Canada does not allow U.S. citizens to get to, and cannabis is another one. And watch out for your phones because if you have pictures of cannabis when you cross the border and you get pulled into secondary, they're definitely going to search your phone and look for pictures of weed. This is truth. This is truth. Yeah, no, it's just interesting because we have so many Canadian investors who need to come down into the U.S. to get a background check, right? I mean, just that alone um, is something that is is now maybe easier. If you don't admit, they must acquit. How crazy is it that that, that Canada doesn't let you do shit if you're an alien, but the U.K. apparently lets you, you know, get out of jail early if you're a child molester and go to a cannabis conference? I read that story. That's ridiculous. I mean, the U.S. does it too, Rico. Who, Jason? <laughs> Who are you talking about? Rico? All right, we're gonna we're gonna relight this room really quickly. You are tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. The thoughts and opinions expressed in the State of Cannabis News Hour are those of the individual speakers and not those of any other speaker, the State of Cannabis, or its members. The statements made in the State of Cannabis News Hour do not constitute legal or accounting advice, and the State of Cannabis and the speakers make no representation regarding the legal status of any substance in any country, area, or territory, or of any authorities. The views expressed in this room do not establish any fiduciary relationship. The sponsorships of the State of Cannabis News Hour do not imply or constitute any endorsement by the State of Cannabis or the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of the State of Cannabis or any speaker. Viewer discretion advised. Let's keep smoking the news. All right, coming up next, if Bono had an anaconda, his name would be Ericus. Lareda. But Bono doesn't have an anaconda because he has a stunt double named Eric S. Lareda, known for his good deeds and being a true steward to the outdoor plant. This freedom-fighting farmer's friend and Bono's, not to mention an award-winning writer, journalist, event producer, and content ninja. Here to give it to you straight, it's Eric S. Lareda. Damn, Jason. Thank you. Um, hey, everybody. Great to be here today. 
My headline is from Cannabis Now, and it's Cannabis and Cryptocurrency Frenemies. So in 2022, Bitcoin, blockchain, cryptocurrency, and other blockchain-reliant gizmos, such as NFTs, are near household words whose adoption or least awareness has been helped along by big-name billionaire endorsers, including Twitter founder and former CEO Jack Dorsey and Tesla CEO Elon Musk, as well as a growing crew of investors. Cannabis is still plagued by a host of problems around banking, cash flow, around product tracking, and authenticity that a decentralized peer-to-peer currency might be able to solve but hasn't. And so the question remains, what can cryptocurrency do for cannabis exactly? Is cryptocurrency just the latest new shiny thing, or does blockchain truly offer something valuable for the cannabis industry? The answer largely depends on who you're asking and how bullish they are on crypto. If you're a true believer, then blockchain and crypto are pure magic, ready to revolutionize everything from regulatory requirements to payment solutions to basic user and customer data. But for most cannabis investors, entrepreneurs, and customers, crypto and blockchain remain a solution in search of a problem, an interesting idea, an emerging technology, but nothing that seems immediately able to help with the questions of raising money, using banks, paying taxes, attracting customers, and the simple art of consuming weed. For businesses who still shut out, uh, are still shut out of banks because of federal law, and for companies who must pay federal taxes in hard U.S. currency and who would have to pay transaction or conversion fees if they operated in a currency other than U.S. dollars, crypto is solving no problems, says Brendan Hallinan, a San Francisco-based cannabis attorney who represents clients in Northern California. Aside from the conversion requirements, volatility is probably the chief reason why crypto isn't a solution for cannabis woes. For a dispensary or business that needs to raise $1 million or needs to pay the state franchise tax board $200,000 in taxes, a digital currency that investors don't deal in and that the state won't take, and that might be worth $800,000 or $1.2 million tomorrow, depending on Elon Musk's tweets, isn't the thing. In some instances, crypto makes things worse for cannabis. Steve Shane is a Philadelphia-based attorney. He and his firm represent cannabis clients all over the country. Shane has secured bank accounts for large, publicly traded cannabis companies, and he's a strong believer in blockchain and crypto as cannabis solutions. The firm also represented a dispensary in Washington State that briefly accepted 28 different types of crypto, briefly because as the dispensary discovered, what customers wanted was to exchange their cash quickly and easily their U.S. dollars for cannabis. What they didn't want to deal with were digital wallets or converting the cash to crypto and then into cannabis. That, in a blockchain parlance, is friction, what you might call a pain in the ass, and thus a legitimate barrier to adoption. As far as Shane and other experts I spoke to, uh, no dispensaries, according to Shane and other experts I spoke to, no dispensary in the U.S. currently accept Bitcoin, or if they do, it was a very recent innovation. It wasn't a great idea, Shane says. It's just one more thing to deal with. People thought they could evade the IRS, and they were flat wrong, Shane says. It was a good idea, but aside from facilitating international money laundering or trying to assuage safety concerns, it just wasn't applicable. On the other hand, as the article notes, shifting from government-sponsored single-tracking mechanisms such as MJ Freeway or Metric to blockchain for state-mandated track-and-trace networks would be a benefit for transparency as well as security. It might also require states like California, who refuse to share any track and trace data with the public, citing state law, to finally reveal how cannabis flows around the country's biggest individual markets. Deals could be inked in smart contracts that automatically execute between two parties and the terms of which exist on blockchain. Growers could tag seed packs or strains with a blockchain-powered QR uh, code, 
or a st- as a stamp of authenticity. And dispensary owners could track their customers' buying habits. A few of us, I'm going to add that a few of us uh, were at CanMed last week, and we got a peek into a super smart application of being uh, blockchain being used in just this way. It's now being beta tested, and the planned rollout is in November. And I can't wait to talk more, more about that, because I think that really is a smart application of blockchain. And that's what I've got today. I'm Eric for the State of Cannabis News Hour. Gracias for having me up. Cryptocurrency seems like such a great idea, but I think it's the ultimate chicken and the egg experiment. Like everybody in the world needs to to participate for it to really work, don't they? Everyone everyone wants to talk about all this cryptocurrency and all this extraness, but yet as cultivators, we're we're required to use LEDs because of less power. But there's no power restrictions on the amount of power consumption that it takes to back cryptocurrency yeah. that none of you guys are even talking about. Yeah, that's no, a, it's a big oh, deal. Yeah, that's, a, that's a thing. That's a huge. Yeah, deal. that's a huge deal, yeah. uh, Jason. You're yeah. right about that, and they get and there's a lot of heat on that. But I think you know the the one thing that this article pointed out that I liked was that as far as a currency, it's still too volatile for you know for most people. Uh, you know, within a business to, to have to deal with that volatility. But on the blockchain side of things, as a, like a track and trace application, uh, as a platform for selling, um, you know, between like peer-to-peer, that kind of stuff, I think it's super valuable because, again, because of that really indelible uh, legacy, you know, that uh, ledger it creates um, to, to be able, for everybody on both, both parties to be able to track. And for IP, you know, it's showing like who owns what, when. So I think there are some great applications down the road. I think you have I a mean, very valid point, Jason, but I, I agree with Eric. And after learning a lot at CanMed, I really think that some of this blockchain allows people to just have more ownership overall and following that chain to hold people accountable. And in this ever-changing market that we're in, I think we're searching for those things. And with IP becoming so valuable, this is something I think we're going to see a lot more of. I'm just going to say, if cannabis is going to start doing crypto, then I'm just going to tell everybody to stay the fuck out of my power grid. All right. Remember, they used to, get, they used to be able to get you on watching your power grid, you know? Hey, maybe exactly. Cover it. Stay the fuck out of my power grid. My, private, my, my power grid is my sacred private space. Well, it sounds like they just sort of lightly touched on it um, a little bit, but I think it was Steve Shane, you said, who pointed out the, the money laundering component of it. Was that something that this article delves into? Uh, Laura, they just touched on it, but yeah, he did point that out. Um, but, and basically what he's saying, he was a fan of it, but you know, as far as the currency application, there's just too much, it's too wonky. There's, it's just not enough adoption. And, you know, for out, you know, for people sort of outliers that want to check it out or, you know, use it in some facet, it, it might be, you know, a way forward. But I think the real use right now, especially for us and other industries is just blockchain ledgers, um, things that could validate transactions, um, incorporate. And f- the one that uh, the application that we saw at CanMed, Liz and I, was uh, it will be metric compliant. So that's amazing for s- small operators to immediately be able to have these transactions um, and have it metric compliant. Just take a you know take a load off them. And I think it really helped facilitate a lot of important transactions. Steve, the Shane's comments in the article didn't talk too much about uh, the money laundering aspect, but he did talk about how once you get to the conversion point where you're converting the crypto into cash or cash into crypto, that it really becomes a pain in the ass for the participating businesses. And that is... Uh, eroding some of the interest in using crypto in the cannabis industry. 
not to mention it creates significant tax liabilities for any um, any business that's using it and could put you in violation of many FTC violations. Could. <laughs> All right. So she, she's the CMO of Event High, the disruptive digital event platform that paved the way for gray area parties when Eventbrite was way ahead of their time in, in the cancel culture lane. In her latest project, She's the co-host and co-founder of Blunt Brunch, where she's totally shifted the success, what successful women in weed look like on a Sunday morning, productive as fuck, while riding the wave of a Category 4 crossfade. Up next, the cannabis futurist extraordinaire herself, Adelia Carrillo. What you got for us? Good morning, everyone. Uh, today's article is the first cannabis consumption lounge, lounge opens in St. Vincent. Uh, this is by the Caribbean National Weekly. So on May 6, last Friday, the Greenhouse Cafe opens its doors as the first cannabis consumption lounge in St. Vincent at the Coconut Grove Beach Club, uh, with people obtaining permits to buy cannabis products for a year after an on-site consultation with the physician. Um, quoted Marie Helen Tremblay stated that um, today we're launching Greenhouse Cafe, which is a cannabis consumption lounge, first of its kind. Uh, she is the general manager of Medicinal, a medical marijuana company in the country. Um, and she said that their company is actually the ones that are going to be supplying the cannabis for the cafe, which is locally grown at their farm. At the launch, she also decided to conduct a clinic during the launch so that they could give easy access to cannabis um, for anybody that visited during the launch. Um, therefore, the company invited Dr. Roger Duncan, who is also a medical officer of health, um, and his focus is the government's infectious disease specialist, along with Dr. Francos Chukot, one of the nation's leading dentists, uh, to do consultations with the clients. So how does this all work? Uh, patients with prescriptions for medical cannabis can purchase their products at the cafe. They do need a valid ID and a valid prescription. Anyone who is 18 years or older can purchase the products. Um, also, the card is a requirement to be able to access medicinal THC products. However, CBD-only products are available over the counter to the public for those that are 18 years and older. Uh, the manager of Green Cafe says individuals must be at least 18 years. Again, as I stated, to patron uh, to visit the lounge, tickets cost fifty six U S dollars for locals and sixty nine U S dollars for visitors. Uh, when looking at the, the at the menu, you'll be able to find THC or CBD tinctures, lotions, vapes, flowers, capsules, uh, keef, and pre rolls. Um, and then when you get to the coconut. Beach Grove Club. They created it so it's literally a simplified process for you. Once you get there, you can get your prescription from the doctor. You get to meet with the doctor in private at one of their cabanas, and then you get to go to the lounge and um, be able to consume your cannabis. Currently, the consumption cafe is being monitored by the S. SVG cannabis authorities uh, to make sure that it does not infringe upon the international narcotics laws. And among the launch uh, was Minister of Agriculture and Industry, Saboto Caesar, who emphasized that he was there purely as an observer, not a participant. So it does sound like this is the first of many to come in the Caribbean um, as they have already started issuing licenses for cultivation, manufacturing, um, research licensing, and then also dispensary licenses. These dispensary licenses are going to be what um, allows you to open up a consumption lounge. Um, one other thing I noticed was that they call dispensary uh, licenses pharmacies. 
Um, and um, yeah, and the consumption lounges can be attached to them. So with that being said, this is Adelia and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. I want to go to St. Vincent. This place looks amazing. It's so beautiful. It's awesome. I think it's a way better destination than uh, Sacramento. Till a hurricane comes. Uh, well, if you don't live there, you go visit. It looks amazing. I don't, let's, I don't, let's have a I don't understand, retreat. I don't understand the, the, the differentiation, and maybe you can uh, comment on this, Adelia. Um, why is it $59 for residents and $69 for tourists? That just seems like a very big, like not a, that wide of a price differentiation for the two. I, yeah, it didn't say the difference in the article. Um, I, I do see that often though in tourism, they do charge visitors a little bit more. I don't know if they get taxed differently upon that. I don't know, but, um, yeah, it didn't say too much in the article, unfortunately. I, I just feel like they should be subsidizing the locals, uh, the locals' costs with the tourist costs, and so like the locals' fee should be maybe like twenty-five or thirty, and just make make the tourists pay a hundred. Yeah, let's keep smoking the news. All right. Well, coming up next, I hope you guys are ready for this. She's an attorney at law focused on bridging the gap between cannabis, entertainment, and psychedelics. Coming next to the stage is the founder of the Cannabis Blog and Podcast, Shall We Toke? Shalina Panu, what are we token on today? Thanks so much, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Shalina, and my headline for today is Connecticut Governor Signs Bipartisan Bill Allowing Psychedelic-Assisted Therapy. According to a press release on the state's website, the governor of Connecticut, Ned Lamont, signed a bipartisan budget bill yesterday, which has provisions that would allow for psychedelic-assisted therapy. Further, it would include the largest tax reduction in Connecticut history of more than $600 million. Government Lamont said this bipartisan budget gives taxpayers their largest tax cut in history, while paying down approximately $3.13 billion in unfunded liabilities, making groundbreaking investments in child care, crime prevention, environmental protection, and caring for our most vulnerable residents. Lieutenant Governor Susan uh, Bisiewicz, I don't know if I'm saying that right, said the passage of this 2023 budget, a budget containing over half a billion dollars in tax cuts, is the beginning of providing significant tax relief for Connecticut's working people, middle class, and retirees. When Governor Lamont and I took office in 2019, our state was facing a $3.7 billion budget deficit, which we, uh, sorry, budget deficit. We will be making a historic contribution towards paying down our long-term unfunded pension liabilities while maintaining one of the strongest rainy day funds in the country. Section 202A5B of the Bipartisan Bill states there is established within available appropriations at the Connecticut Mental Health Center established pursuant to the sections of the general statutes, a psychedelic-assisted therapy pilot program to provide qualified patients with the funding necessary to receive MDMA-assisted or psilocybin-assisted therapy as part of an expanded access program approved by the FDA. Pursuant to the section, um, she said the center shall cease to operate the pilot program when Um, the MDA and psilocybin have been approved to have a medical use by the DEA or any successor agency. Under another section, a qualified patient means a resident of the state who is a veteran, a retired first responder, or a a direct care healthcare worker. It further states the Connecticut Mental Health Center uh, shall administer AIDS and I'm sorry, I don't know if I got that right. And the funds for grants for 
to qualified applicants to provide MDMA-assisted or psilocybin-assisted therapy to qualified patients under the pilot program established pursuant to the subsection B of this section. Section 203 states there would be a Connecticut Psychedelic Treatment Advisory Board, which will be a part of the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services. The board will consist of government leaders, um, as well as members with experience or expertise in psychedelic research, psychedelic-assisted therapy, public health, access to mental and behavioral health care in underserved communities, veteran mental and behavioral health care, harm reduction, and sacramental use of psychedelic substances. Um, Section 203 states that the board shall advise the Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services of the design and development of the regulations and infrastructure necessary to safely allow for therapeutic access to psychedelic-assisted therapy upon the legalization of MDMA, psilocybin, and any other psychedelic compounds. Um, In advising the department under this subsection, the board shall be responsible for reviewing and considering the data from the psychedelic-assisted therapy pilot program established under the Section 202 of this Act to inform the the development of such regulations. Um, They also would advise the department on the necessary education, training, licensing, and um, credentialing of therapists and facilitators, patient safety, harm reduction, the establishment of equity measures in both clinical and therapeutic settings, cost and insurance reimbursement consideration and standards of treatment facilities. Um, They'd also be advising the department on the use of group therapy and other therapy options to reduce costs and maximize public health benefits from psychedelic treatments. Uh, They'd also be monitoring updated federal regulations and guidelines for referral and consideration by the state agencies of cognizance for implementation of such regulations and guidelines. Um, also to develop a long-term strate- strategic plan to improve mental health care through the use of psychedelic treatment. They'd also recommend equity measures for clinical subject rec- uh, recruitment and facilitator training requirement and assist with the development of public awareness and education campaigns. Uh, you can look below at the budget breakdown that's directly from their website. Uh, what are your thoughts on this bill? My name is Shalina, and I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. That was a I'm excited. <laughs> No, sorry. I, I was just saying it was it was a mouthful of information. Sorry about all that. I'm excited to go get some psychedelic therapy. Are they are they offering all different types of forms of psychedelic therapy, or is it only li- limited to certain substances? Uh, From what I saw, it was just psilocybin and MDMA. That's all I, I saw. It didn't say anything else. Oh, uh, break out your... So you can, get, you, can get, you can get pretty fucking ripped, huh? But break out I'm your waiting. glow sticks, Rico. We're going to Connecticut, dog. I never put them away, bro. There's a lot to unpack there, Shalina. Thanks for bringing that up. But I think, you know, there's so many speed bumps and all this stuff's happening. But if you just zoom out and look at this, we are just on a whole new road with psychedelics. And I'm so glad to see it's like, you know, from Connecticut to Hawaii and everywhere in between that there's real movement on this. And, you know, it's like stumbling forward kind of thing, but it's inevitable. It's, this is going to happen. There's going to be, people are going to have more access to this really amazing medicine that just, you know, those of us who are familiar with it, just, you know, we can't say enough about it. So I'm glad to see that it's, it's getting, you know, some kind of protocol where more people can have access. Super important. I didn't know you I didn't know you bumped speed. Uh, no, no, no. Eric. I don't mix the speed and shrooms. Just a shroom. <laughs> that would be that'd be an interesting. Uh, that'd be an interesting. Fade, fit, crossfit. We got to we got to keep it moving because uh, we're running out of time here. Our next correspondent prefers her data and drama completely segregated and uncontaminated. So make sure your news stories come with a COA and the chain of custody's been established. She's an educator, brand strategist, healthcare consultant, founder of the Cannabis Business Council of Santa Barbara County, and she really is redefining what it means to be a Renaissance woman. One clubhouse link at a time. Riz Rogan, what you got for us today? 
<laughs> Thank you so much, Rico. Greetings, everyone. Thanks for joining us on this Tuesday. My story comes from Marijuana Moment, also by Kyle Yeager. Um, the headline reads, Feds Funding Research on Role of Cannabis in Treating Cancer. So this is reported on by Kyle Yeager, but I went right to the source, which is the National Institute of Health. So I'm going to give you a little more information from there. So on Thursday, the National Institute of Health, which is NIH, posted a notice of special interest, which is for basic mechanisms of cannabis and cannabinoid answer cancer. So this is huge because the NIH acknowledged that one in four cancer patients uses cannabis to help relieve symptoms. But they do say that the research on this topic has, quote, yielded limited and inconsistent results. And according to the CDC, uh, cancer is the number two death of uh, cause of death in the United States. So the notice invites research applications that examine the mechanistic action of cannabinoids and cannabis and cancer biology, cancer interception, cancer treatment, and resistant and management of cancer symptoms. So they're really looking at cannabis like itself as an exogenous cannabinoid that's from a plant, cannabis-derived products and extracts, and they're also looking at the purified and synthetic cannabinoids and your endogenous cannabinoids, which are inside your body. So they're basically asking for, you know, calls for proposal, basically, in understanding how these all work, how they help influence, you know, your body, influence cancer development, influence fighting cancer. Um, it's essentially all these mechanisms of cannabis and cannabinoid action. And so deeper into the study, it kind of has a little more um, information into the posting. It has more information on how you can apply. Um, but it's kind of neat because they are looking at comorbid factors such as like t tobacco, alcohol, your microbiome, and your diet on cancer biology in conjunction with cannabinoids. So it's really neat. There's a lot going on there. Um, they are not uh, looking, if you're trying to look at clinical trials at this point in time, they're not accepting that. Or if it's not related to cancer, uh, they're not interested in it. So it's they start accepting applications for this on June 5th, and it goes through May 8th, 2027. So many in the general public uh, now acknowledge that cannabis helps alleviate symptoms and may help play some role in fighting cancer. I personally believe this led to the broad support of legalization we see growing nationwide. I am concerned about the opportunity it offers pharma. I hope it will really look at the different forms of cannabis, including whole plant in this, but I'm optimistic for patients overall that this will provide a lot more data so that physicians can move forward and hopefully we'll see some cannabinoid therapy that's offered and covered by insurance for patients. So this is Liz Rogan. I'm reporting for the State of Cannabis News Hour. If you look in this article, you will find the link to the actual posting on the NIH site, and that's how you can apply. So I would love to hear what you guys have to say on this. I think it's really exciting news because basically thus far we really only have uh, seizures as something they acknowledge cannabis use for. We, we need to get Laura's story in, but I wanted to quickly poll the audience. Audience, raise your hands if you personally know someone that's beat cancer using cannabis. Raise your hands. Hi. We are not going to have you come up on stage. We just want to know if you know somebody that has beat cancer with cannabis. And flash your mics. Yeah. Yep. Lots, lots of y'all. What's going to come of that? What's, what's going to even come of that if they, if they can prove it? They're not going to tell us. Uh, patents will probably go for pharma. That's my concern. Yeah, I, I feel like we could have a room on this, absolutely. But let's keep smoking the news. This badass cannamom is the co-founder of the International Cannabis Bar Association, current chair of the, of the Bar Association of San Francisco Cannabis Law Sector, founder of the San Francisco Equity Applicant Pro Bono Legal Project, 
and the organic source for the silkiest, smoothest vocal cords in the Western Hemisphere. Truly amazing. Laura DeCaro, land this plane. All right. Thank you, everybody. Happy National Fentanyl Awareness Day. Um, my story actually is also by Kyle, Kyle Yeager. We love that guy in his house, I suppose. His story was psychedelics activists arrested at DEA headquarters amid protest over psilocybin access for terminal patients. Apparently patients, veterans, um, and activists, including, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Bronner's Magic Soap CEO, David Bronner, and Decriminalized Nature DC founder, Adam Edinger, um, were among some folks who advocated outside of the DEA's administrative uh, headquarters in Virginia on Monday, demanding that the agency allow terminally ill patients to access psilocybin therapy. The activists highlighted the plight of one terminally ill patient, Aaron Balchweil, uh, uh, who is involved in ongoing litigation against the DEA over its refusal to give her and others access to psilocybin. In true psychedelic style, these activists set off colorful smoke bombs, plastered the building with violation notices, held a die-in outside one of the entrances, removed the DEA's flag, and painted messages on windows. While it seemed that the officers had potentially reached a deal to allow Baldschweiler to speak with the DEA officials about the issue, she and 16 others were ultimately handcuffed and arrested. Catherine Tucker, who is an attorney representing... Uh, the patient in the legal challenge said not one more dying patient should have to endure debilitating anxiety and depression when relief could so easily be had. Uh, To point out, the FDA has already granted psilocybin as a breakthrough therapy designation, but the DEA insists on getting in the way of national and state right-to-try laws. So it'll be interesting to see what, if anything, they do in Connecticut. Um, Apparently, um, Baldschweiler and another terminally ill cancer patient filed a lawsuit last year against the DEA, arguing that they should have legal access to psilocybin under state and federal right-to-try laws. Those are the laws that are intended to let patients with terminally terminal conditions try investigational medications that have not been approved for medical use. Anyway, it's really interesting. Um, It goes on to say that they filed a a petition under procedural grounds, I'm sorry, to reschedule uh, psilocybin to Schedule 2, which would move it into the category of drugs with a high potential for abuse, including methadone, oxycodone, and fentanyl. So taking it back, happy National Fentanyl Awareness Day. Thank you for landing the plane, Laura. I don't think they should have um, painted the windows. They should have cleaned them with Dr. Bronner soap in specific (laughs) specific shapes and letters and stuff. That would have been a lot nicer and more effective, in my opinion. But we've reached the top of the hour. That was a really great show. If you missed any of it, make sure you catch the replay or find us a few hours after the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you like the content, please subscribe and leave a review. A big thank you to all of the correspondents that comb through all the headlines each day to bring us just what we need to know. A big thank you to Rico and Jason for co-producing the show and our pinup girl, Liz Rogan. And thank you, audience, for being our eyes and ears when there's news in your city, county, state, or country. You take us deeper into the story. You add color and sometimes provide us with amazing sound bites. Let's do another one. You've been tuned in to the State of Cannabis News Hour where we collectively move policy forward in an inclusive and sustainable way. Start your morning on a high note 
and join us every weekday, 9 a.m. Pacific time for the State of Cannabis News Hour, your daily dose. Bye. So that one.